Hello to my faithful followers and podcast listeners of the In the Trenches podcast with yours truly, Andrew Taylor. In this episode, I have the opportunity of interviewing Ruben Jimenez. Ruben and I met the first year we opened Pure Life, uh, my program in Costa Rica, and we immediately hit it off. Every time I talk to Ruben, I learn something new, and this interview was no exception. Ruben is a licensed therapist, speaker, a coach, a counselor, a pastoral counselor, which we talk about in the interview, and author of a book called The Road Home, a guide for parents of kids coming home from therapeutic treatment programs. He currently spends most of his time coaching right now and running expedition workshops for his clients. He also takes time once a month to go traveling with his son, which he talks about in great depth in this interview. I enjoyed the interview. I hope you do as well. And as always, thank you for joining. All right, Ruben Jimenez, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, buddy? Good, good. Tell us a little bit your story. How did you get into what you're doing? You were a therapist, now you're a coach. And uh, we, you, know, you come from Salt Lake City. We're, our, we're hometown yeah. buddies in that way. So tell us a little bit about your, your background. You know, being raised here in Utah, like my dad always took me outdoors, hunting, fishing, skiing. We didn't really have a lot of money, but somehow he could afford to get us on the hill. And it was just, it, I think that was my primary exposure to nature and something like I'm about to go do with my son. And I remember in my thirties, I was in private practice in San Diego and I just started to take my clients outside and I did a little bit of research and realized there was an industry that did that with kids. And before I knew it, I was a wilderness therapist. So it was kind of a gradual entry. It took me till probably my late thirties. Oh, cool. Where'd you work? Open sky. Yeah. I was a wilderness therapist there for three years. What drew you to therapy in the first place? What made you want to be a therapist? You know, I was self-employed in my late twenties and my work felt fairly soulless. And, you know, I was making a lot of money and enjoying self-employment, but I realized there was probably something more for me. And so I just kind of did a lot of my own journaling and soul work. And before I knew it, I'm like, you know, I need to go back to grad school and become a therapist. And it's kind of what I was about, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do, giving back to people in the world. And I can tell you 20 years later, it was the right decision. And so how old were you when you went back to grad school? Well, this is what's interesting. I was terrified of going to grad school. Um, I didn't know if I could handle the workload. So, you know, I graduated with my undergrad, at, I think age 24, and I didn't go to grad school until I was about 31. So it took, it took a lot of courage on my part. And then I fell in love with grad school. I actually ended up doing two different graduate degrees, um, one was a master's in social work with a clinical focus, and then one was a pastoral counseling. Um, and, you know, sometimes I look back and I go, man, I should have been a college professor because I just really love teaching and writing and thinking. And, um, and yet the biggest aspect of my personality is I love nature and I love self-employment. So ultimately, when the day is done, I'm glad I chose this path. Yeah, yeah, you have a, you have a good thing going right now. You know, I think it's very... It's interesting that, you know, you didn't find your path till your late 20s, early 30s. When I'm working with young adults, and if anybody's been listening to the podcast for a while, they probably know this, but I'm a huge believer that you don't 
you don't know what you want to do when you're 24 and you shouldn't, you know, yeah, maybe you need to pick a career or maybe you need to pick a path, but I'm like you where it wasn't until my late twenties, early thirties that I went back to grad school, started to really understand who I was and what, what I was interested in. So I, I, I'm a big believer in save grad school till you really know what it is you want to do. And that's worked out well. For yeah, me. I, I agree. And, you know, even at age 50, I think it seems like the old unfolding mystery of people's lives, um, including my own, it's, it's like we're always moving into the next adventure. Um, so I think it's more of a position, a, a way of just looking at life. I just did a retreat for a guy in his uh, mid-30s, very wealthy guy. Just, but he was confused. He's like, okay, what's the next step? And so he spent two days out in nature, fly fishing, zip lining, just hiking around the mountains, um, contemplating, you know, kind of his existential process, his, his own mystery. And I think, you know, the 20s are that period of time where we're more in flux, there's more fluidity. But I think even someone like in their 20s needs to just follow their heart and keep following that meandering trail, see where the river goes. You know, I don't regret that I taught high school in my early 20s or was a bartender or a ski patrolman. Those were huge developmental pieces. I'm glad that I went to Alaska and lived for seven years. I'm glad that I was a ski bum. I'm glad that I was a river guide. Like all of that is something I use at age 50, all of that life experience. And so grad school was a very formative period, but I will tell you, most of my education came from post-grad school. So when I was in private practice, working with seven or eight people a day for three or four years straight, then wilderness therapy, and then this last 10 years, really just all kinds of stuff. I probably do 20 different things. I'm learning from my clients. They are my university. So, you know, I hope to the day I die, I hope I get to live to a ripe age of 90, and I hope I'm working to the day, you know, I die. I hope I die with my boots on, I work with my, uh, die with my work boots on. I definitely think that, one of the greatest joys in life is your own unfolding mystery. And, you know, I've worked with thousands and thousands of clients now, and I would say that they resonate with that reality or truth or that theory. So you went to, after open sky, you started kind of going out on your own and doing your own thing, writing books, things like that. Right. Yeah. I wrote a one book under a different name. You know, if my clients read that book, I probably would never get hired. It was a book about motorcycling. It was more just my own meandering thoughts um, about, you know, wh how motorcycling fed my soul. And then I wrote another book um, specifically for parents with a child that's in treatment or coming home from treatment. So after I left Open Sky, I realized I really wanted to be self-employed again. And I appreciated what wilderness had done. It had given me a strong foundation in the wilderness field taught me how that it works. And then I told a few friends and colleagues in our industry, I said, you know, I really want to hang a shingle up and I'd be willing to take a swing at anything. Like if there's any creative solution you need that no program is doing, just give me a call. Well, their phone started to ring right off the hook. And I literally haven't had a market for one day. Um, I, I'm grateful for that. And um, so I basically it's just word of mouth and people pass my name around. And that's why I say I do 20 things. Um, I pretty much get a phone call every day asking, being asked even right now to do something that maybe doesn't exist out there programmatically. 
-hmm. So I really do kind of a tailored approach for clients. Um, sometimes my clients have never been to treatment. Sometimes a person wants like a life coach. Sometimes someone wants a spiritual director. Um, oftentimes I'd say half the time, um, my clients were families that had had a kid that went to wilderness or to an aftercare. And so over the course of about five years, I really fell in love with the families, specifically the parents, because I realized they need some extra support to help their child hold on to the gains the child made in treatment. Because a lot of kids can lose the gains they make in wilderness. And so I developed a model specifically for that and then wrote a book about it. And that's what the road home's about. The yeah, the road home, it's, it's, you know, it's based on two concepts. The road home is based on a model where the parents really need to stand in who they are. Um, not rigidly, but I, I ask the parents to do their own soul work. I ask the parents to really dig deep and find out what they're about. Um, and then from those values become the boundaries of their home. And, and the reason why, it's not that the parents' values are always like necessarily the best, but, but most of the time they are. Most of the time it's about honesty and trust and we want you to be healthy and happy. But when the rules come from the parents, then the kid can fill the walls, just like a program, every program, every wilderness program, pure life, you know, your program, pure Vita, it, you guys have sorted out who you are. And so you have a philosophy and the kids can feel that solidity. The second aspect of my book and my model is about emotional safety. So I basically teach the parents like motivational interviewing and how to be emotionally safe so their children can be more authentic and themselves and more relaxed. And so when someone's in an emotionally safe environment, they tend to be themselves. And most people are fundamentally healthy at their core, I believe. So between value-based boundaries, emotional safety, which is what we do in treatment, then the kid has their best bet at holding on to the gains they made in treatment. So that's, I mean, that's my approach. We all have different approaches, but that's mine. I like it. You probably get this a lot, and, and I do too. You end up in a social situation, and people corner you and ask you, how do, I, how do I parent in a way so as not to need your services, right? What, what's your advice to parents out there right now that might have you know, healthy children and maybe a healthy environment, but to keep it that way, or maybe some families that are struggling with some things? What's, what's your advice to these families? You know, if the families um, have a relatively um, healthy process going where the, there's no need for treatment, the advice I have is stay tuned in to your child. It's based on attachment theory. So it's really about tuning into the human being in front of you. I mean, another word is to stay present because, you know, children are moving targets and parents know that. They know their child's changing daily, weekly, and sometimes like year to year, they're fundamentally different. When I taught high school, a freshman was completely different than a sophomore, who was completely different than a senior. So it's almost like the parent has to tune in and track the child's inner movements and listen. So that would move to the second point, which is to listen. While you're tuned in, listen to that person. And the third is to be a witness to their life. I think if you're tuned into a human being, whether it's your child or your partner or your best friend, and you're really listening to their story, then you can walk with them through life. And that's often what will stabilize and what we ask for in a healthy relationship. Um, if a child's a little thready and is kind of on the cusp of needing treatment or is in crisis, 
then I think the parents need to take a strong look at their parenting style because, you know, not that the, the parent's responsible for the child's dysfunction, but if the parent looks strongly at their parenting style and tightens it up a little bit with, um, you know, kind of more sound boundaries that can't be pushed around and um, strong education on how to be emotionally safe for their child, they can often pull their child back from the brink. So a lot of times I say a third of my clients have never had treatment and I get a family in crisis. Most of the time we can walk that family back from the brink of the cliff by simply, you know, doing a few things. What keeps parents from being in tune and being present? What are the distractions or mm-hmm. that get in the way of that? You know, that's a really loaded question I could probably spend an hour on. But in a nutshell, what I think it is, is um, we particularly live in a very busy culture. And I think sometimes we all get so busy that um, we're exhausted. And I'm speaking for myself as well. It takes a really conscientious awareness. I guess that's saying the same thing, but it takes a lot of awareness to not get so quote unquote productive. So we're present for relationship. Because I think relationship really saves the day. My model is very relational. I try to get the parents to drop into a relational stance with their child and not be so focused on performance and productivity. And I think that's the big trap of our culture. You, go to, you look at other cultures that are quote unquote happier. They're not so laser focused on this idea of being productive, going to college, getting A's. And consequently, their children are much more resilient and happy. And I think that's the goal. Like you talk to any parent and they go, I just want my child to be healthy and happy. Well, okay, get them off the hamster wheel. That would really help. And help these children kind of identify who they are and become more authentic. And the child will usually recalibrate into a healthier stance. That being said, there are a few caveats like, you know, pronounced pot use and addiction to technology that can throw off any family system, no matter how healthy the parents are parenting. Oh man, that, I mean, we could spend two hours on that alone, right? Yeah, And, and I, uh, I have another interview, my, my, la- my last interview with Rachel Herschel, we talked for over an hour about that uh, technology use and, and how that's influencing yeah. the, the current uh, generations. You know, it, it's interesting because I, you see this happening, this pressure cooker and, uh, you know, it's starting in, honestly, kindergarten, right? And it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. more prevalent in, in, in certain specific communities, but it's this idea of the right, the right kindergarten, the right preschool, the right, you know, and it, it does. It's the American way. It's what we value in America. Um, but I think we're getting a little lost in it. And I agree with you. I yeah, think. yeah. I mean, I, you know, I love... I think it's such a gift to be born here. And I think every culture has its shadow. Like Sweden has its shadow, Mexico, the United, we all, the shadow is the underbelly. And I think America's, there's great strengths in being in the United States. It's a wonderful country and culture at the same time. um, It seems like the shadow or the underbelly is that some of these kids are not so performance and production oriented. And my experience is, the kid that goes to wilderness thinks outside the box. And I was one of those kids. Like when I was in third grade, I didn't want to play by all this go, go, go mentality. 
And I see a lot of the kids, maybe that's why I love working with them is they're really kind of cool people. They're like, you know, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I fit into this. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. If you look at a lot of the people in Silicon Valley or, you know, the movers and shakers in Manhattan or, you know, the rancher in Texas, they had to do it their way. They, they questioned the paradigm of the status quo. I love those people and they love their freedom and they tend to be entrepreneurial and creative. So I think most of the time, some of the kids we get in treatment are actually kind of healthy. And, and so they're just saying, I want something different than what I'm being force fed. And so I like to grow that piece. And when I grow that piece in that person, they tend to not, um, th their mental health problems tend to go away. The prescription, right? They've been prescribed and whether yeah. it was, you know, obvious uh, or not, there's a path, right? Um, you know, I grew up right. with that and no one forced it on me, but you know, I knew a lot of really successful, happy, healthy families with dentist, doctor, lawyer, sort of, you know, um, sort of a, a, a careers and, you know, hey, they, they lived nice, they were comfortable, they, they didn't, you know, they weren't without and, you know, I agree with you at a young age, I was like, you know, it's admirable work, but I just don't see it working for me. And that's where I spent my 20s, a lot like you river guiding and traveling the yeah. world and trying different jobs and started a property management business and, you know, just some really interesting different things, but that all served me very well in my journey. So, you know, I was raised, my grandparents were from another country. They're immigrants. So education was key. My dad didn't know English when he was a child and the Catholic nuns held him back and taught him English. And we learned quickly in our family coming out of the 1930s that education was the path. And my two brothers, one became a doctor, one became an engineer. Well, I was supposed to be the lawyer and my dad pushed me very hard into law, you know, towards law school. But I remember when I was 22, I finally said, dad, I appreciate why you're wanting me to be a lawyer. And I do like to argue with my words. So, <laughs> but he respected the fact that I stood up for myself and chose my own path. I'll tell you, my path has been crooked. I'll tell you, it's been meandering and adventurous and fun. Um, you know, my brother that became the doctor, my brother that became the engineer, they had great lives too. So I'm, you know, I think everyone's just got to find their own path. And I think that that's, that's actually why I value my third uh, degree in pastoral counseling is it taught me um, to move away from the clinical model. So the clinical model is important, you know, but sometimes we over pathologize ourselves and our children. And I think that's dangerous. Um, it's important to know what pathology is to help heal it. But oftentimes we get kids in treatment where we just, they just need a person to walk along with them through life. That's more of a pastoral counseling model. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if someone's an atheist, a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Jew. Like The pastoral counseling model is you're walking with them through their experience and giving them context. Like, oh, you're 18. This is a rite of passage. Um, you know, Sometimes when you're 30, this is what you might be going through. Sometimes we just need a witness to our existence. And you know, I don't, my model is not based on dependency. I don't want my clients to need me um, more than they once they're kind of moving on to their own journey in a healthy way, I actually want them to let go. But I'll tell you, 
this happens all the time in my practice where even if I haven't talked to a client for two or three or five years, they'll call me back up and want to work through another aspect of their life. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting. I've got 10 years now to look back um, post wilderness and 20 years as a clinician, basically um, looking back and seeing that some people just want a witness to walk with them through their life kind of as a guide. And I think religions and um, some cultures used to do that. And so I think the professionals such as myself, sometimes we're being asked to, to do that piece that maybe the pastor or the nun used to do um, or the sage or the shaman or the guru or whatever. And I certainly don't like the label of like that we're like some type of guru or something. I don't buy into that. I do think that we, we are an important um, professional to walk with these clients, more specifically the parents than the kid. Because the kid usually gets on with their life. It's the parent that actually gets confused. I mean, think about it for a minute, Andrew. You focus so much in your program on the kid. Of course, you do a parent aspect as well. Mm-hmm. But once that kid gets healthy, which most do in wilderness, most kids self-correct. Um, it's a very effective modality. But what's interesting is once the kid leaves, the person that's terrified and still anxious is the parent. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest it's the parent that needs um, two or three months of support after the child's left treatment because the parent's like, okay, what do I do now? Yeah. That was a meandering answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That's I, how I roll, I, baby. I, I agree. I and, and you've heard this too, I'm sure. And it is... You know, when I get on the phone or, you know, we, we talk to these families, they say, where's my program? Where, when, do I, yeah. when do I get to come down to Costa Rica? Not just for the fun of, you know, the beauty of Costa Rica, but for the work. And, and you know, yeah, we do. We do a two-day intensive. And right now we're actually looking at doing, you know, maybe a week-long retreat for families for that very reason that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and right. I, I think it is a valid point. It's not uncommon. And this is, you know, the work that you're doing is the, the road home. They come back from this powerful rite of passage experience. And, you know, the parents have been doing their work, but they're still, they haven't had that powerful experience that, that the young person has had. And, well, yeah. and, and, and I will say this, that they are looking for some aspect of their own healing, but actually what they need is just simple coaching. They don't need therapy per se. They need coaching. Okay, what do I do so this kid doesn't lose what they've had? I just spent 30 grand or, you know, a lot of money and, and um, a lot of sweat and blood and tears. My child's finally better after sometimes five years of horrific experiences. Sometimes the family's traumatized, including the parents. Totally. And so it's like, they're like, just tell me what I need to do. And I'm like, well, okay, let's get to work here. You see within three to four months, they're good to go. They'll go, I got it. I got the spirit of what you're saying. I'm like, cool. And they can integrate it. Um, you know, most parents that we get to work with, they're the, parent, they're the parents that read the books. They're the parents that would do anything for their children. They're the parents that um, would spend their retirement on their child. Like these are really committed people. And, you know, usually when someone gets to wilderness, it's, it's like the last resort. Um, and so by the time I get to work with parents, they're very open to almost any suggestions. Um, but one thing I have found is they have very really low self-confidence. They, they lost. Yeah. Well, they lost their instinct. They, their child, 
their child's mental health stuff or the child's dysfunction or misbehavior um, sometimes riddles the parents with self-doubt. And, you know, what I have found is most of these parents are really good parents. If they would just change their style about 10 or 20% and they would stand in who they are and start trusting their instinct again, um, the kid will be better off for it. So just to back up a step, pastoral counseling, you're, you're a spiritual guide in that setting. Right. Okay. Right. Are you doing it within the context of religion? If they, if your client Um, has a religion or are you doing it more just in a spiritual, you know, spiritually guided sort of counseling approach? This is fascinating. That's a good question. The program I went to was very diverse. It had, you know, um, lots of people involved in the mental health field that had no religious training. They had a lot of people um, that had religious training, but no clinical background. So my program would support clinicians, giving them a sense and education on how faith develops within um, a tribe or a religion. And it would give someone who's religious clinical training. So they knew the difference between kind of a religious experience versus the schizophrenic experience. And they didn't make mistakes. So my training is it's diverse. So pastoral counseling basically is, Um, steeped in psychology, actually, and anthropology. And it's this idea of learning how one's religion, faith, or spirituality can help or hinder. So sometimes, you know, someone, I've helped people within the context of their religion or spirituality um, just grow. My job is to help them grow towards a healthier and happier stance in life. So, you know, sometimes someone's outgrowing something they were raised with religiously as a child. It's a natural part of life if you get to grow old. Um, and sometimes it, their spirituality is developing and evolving. And so it's really about learning to track those movements with that person for the betterment of their life. So there's no religious push, but sometimes religion really helps people and their spirituality. And sometimes it hurts. So if someone's in a very controlling cultish type situation, sometimes you need to help them break out of a traumatic experience. Um, Sometimes I've done a lot of trauma work with someone who's come out of a horrible religious or spiritual abuse situation. Other times I'm helping people embrace their spirituality and maybe their religion as it helps them. It's really about being client focused. Yeah, well, I like that, you know, and the 12 step model for addiction is not for everybody, but there's a very powerful spiritual component to that, you know, a belief in higher power and uh, I do think that there's a time and a place for that in a mental health setting. I didn't know you'd had that uh, pastoral counseling background, and that's pretty cool. The truth is, like, I have found some of the greatest people of in spiritual integrity are those that just take that part of life seriously. It could be a, an atheist, can have profound strength, sense of belief in what's right in, in the world and try to live a good life. Um, so, you know, whether they're a person's religious or not, I think people have an aspect to, quote unquote, their essence or soul, that they want to live a good life, something that's meaningful, that offers joy and context to their life. Um, life throws us curveballs. It could be cancer at age 22. I mean, it's really, it's an interesting journey. It can offer incredible moments on top of the mountain or dark moments in the bottom of the valley in the canyon the shadow so it's really about meeting people where they're at and it's an honor to 
really be a witness to someone's um, deeper process. And, you know, on 12 step, my own spiritual director wrote a book. Um, this is back in my late twenties, early thirties, coming back to my own discernment. My own spiritual director wrote a book about the relationship between the guy that started 12 step bill and one of his best friends, a Jesuit priest. And uh, my own personal journey is I used Ignatian Jesuit spiritual discernment to find my own path. And um, a lot of 12 step people don't know this, but a lot of 12 steps based on um, Ignatian spiritual discernment. Ooh. But yeah, that, that's, but you know, that's kind of some of the underpinnings. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's cool. I, I will say, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't, in therapy growing up, but I had a handful of mentors and uh, one specifically that really took me aside and, and was key in my, in my development into adulthood. And I was just lucky. I was just lucky to be surrounded by a tribe that was very supportive in that way and facilitated that. And I'm a big believer in mentors and role models because it just happens at some point, most young people, most kids think their parents aren't very cool and don't know what they're talking about. And there's these power struggles in the home. That's when someone like you and me or hired, unhired, you know, someone like that around to kind of talk some sense into them that they will listen to. I, I think that's invaluable. And that's one of the things I tell people when they're like, how do I raise healthy kids? Surround them with great role models and mentors. Because at some point they won't yeah. like you. <laughs> yeah, and but I think that's how life was designed. I think that's how it's meant to be. Back in the day, I will tell you as a kid, what grounded me were, you know, my friends' parents, my parents, my priest, my the nuns that taught me, um, the coaches, my uncles, my aunts. I think humans were social animals. I think we were designed to be in a tribe. And I think one of the greatest um, tragedies of our culture is that people have kind of destroyed some of those, not, not knowingly and not consciously, but we've, we don't live in little units anymore. A lot of people in the U S um, we're not sticking to a tribe where the shaman or medicine man or, or the priest or the bishop or um, the scout leader can have a lot of influence now on kids. And we're asking the parents to do all the lifting. And that's an incredible burden to ask two people to do what it used to take 20 people to do. And so, you know, I think the answer is community, whether it's, um, you know, mentors at a church or a scout camp or just your friends, authority figures, or, you know, the, the, the cool uncle, um, we need, the kids need that. And so sometimes we are asked as professionals, quite often I'm asked, daily to be that person to their kid and yeah. um, it's it's an honor it's humbling and it also feels like uh, it's a hard thing to do because um, I'm only going to know this kid maybe for three six months or a year same with Pure Vita like you're only going to know that kid for a couple months two three months so we're asked to fill a role of something that some kids used to have their that person for their whole life um, I will tell you my uncle's had a huge impression on me. Um, and so I'm going to go buy a pair of skis today. I'm still in love with skiing because of an uncle and that skiing kept me healthy. So I don't know. I, I think you're onto something that we do need the mentors, the role models, parents can't do it all. And they never, they've always needed a community. 
It doesn't mean any less of the parent. It just means a human being needs many adults in their life. Yes. So, yeah. I like that. Parents can't do it all. And no, yeah. And we think they do. We think we do. We think we have to do it all. And anyway, let's segue in. That's a good segue in. And tell us about your son and tell us about what, what you do and how it's going and your adventures. You know, I'll start off with my dad. Like my dad has Alzheimer's right now. I'm going to go up there today to the nursing home and trim his beard and his mustache and shave him and give him a hug. And he won't remember it the next day. Um, he still knows my name, thank God. But my father imprinted on me how important it was to put your arm around your son and look at the stars. If I can give that to my son, I won. If I can give one gift to my son, it's the gift of nature. I, I mean that with all my heart. You know, I, he's almost five years old and I had a child late in life. I'm 50. I've been, it's been an honor to be an uncle to most of my nieces and nephews, most of them I'm very close to, but to be a dad is, a, is the ultimate responsibility and it terrifies me and excites me um, at the same time so you know I what's interesting is I found so far I've only really disciplined my child like twice and it was around one issue uh, kindness I found out that my, my religion is kindness I want my son to be a kind human being and to know nature so you know I'm sure I'll have other rules as he gets older like many of my clients um, have to have more rules and boundaries but um, so far, it's so good. He's a sweetheart. Um, he'll just sit and stare at the ocean for 45 minutes and doesn't want to be bothered, and I'm cool with that. We're going to go this week. Um, my goal was to take him on adventures every month, and so this month we're going to spend a week at the beach, Pismo, and get a nice little place overlooking the ocean and do marshmallows every night at the campfire. And um, that's, I, that's what I do for us every month. And I hope that Someday um, I can give him the camper when he's 16 and say, go take your buddies and take off and have a great time skiing or rock climbing or surfing. I mean, I will tell you as a parent, my worst fear is that he gets addicted to technology. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're all struggling with this issue, including myself. Uh, I think parents are, we're trying to figure this one out. It seems like there's something that doesn't feel right. And so um, my son may not like me in five years because I may not let him have a game or a gaming device or a cell phone. Um, he can watch movies, but it's going to be out. So we're going to go surfing and mountain biking and skiing. And I hope he likes it because that's my, those are my values. And from my values will come my boundaries. And hopefully I'm a in tune parent who will listen to my child and, you know, not push my agenda too hard um, and listen to the tempo, help him listen to the tempo of his own soul. Um, if I can do that, I, that's winning to me. Yeah. And I, I think it's important. What I love about what you're doing with your son. And I think it's one of the reasons you and I are friends. I think it's why I enjoy hanging out with you is we just is, I, I do believe that it, it's not enough just to say, get off the technology or don't use the technology as parents in communities. We have to offer these young people a, an attractive alternative. Be it nature and adventure for you and I, or sports, which was really powerful for me as well growing up. And I, I hope my kids are into it. Um, I want to introduce, give them every opportunity to, to get excited about those things. But we've got to provide something. And that's what, I mean, you're starting at such a young age. How does your son respond? 
Well, it's cool. He just kind of mimics it now. He it, pretty much every month is like, Papa, Papa, what adventure are we doing this month? You know, it's just like <laughs> he, he knows that's what we do. And I've been doing it since he's been less than two years old every month for usually six, seven days. So, you know, one month we're sleeping in a teepee in the mountains of San Diego. You know, the next month we're in the Palm Desert or, um, you know, skiing up a snowbird or solitude. And, um, you know, so he knows it's a life of adventure, which to me is the metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm still on my adventure. And I think that that makes life exciting and fun. Um, it, it keeps me grounded. I hope it keeps him grounded. Um, and it's not just about nature. It's about just going out and being curious. Um, you know, he's already been to other countries and I, I'm, you know, hopefully we're down in Mexico next year and I'll scuba dive and he'll be on the beach being babysat for a few hours. And eventually we'll put him in the ocean on a surfboard in the next year or two. So um, to me, it's more about like just having fun with life. We all know that life has some suffering and incredible vicissitudes. And I think that if you temper it with play and, adventure it, it makes it this beautiful childlike experience to the day you die i never forgot my mom you know she's 83 now but she still says you know i feel young inside and i like that i always tell my clients like hey lose your childish ways but never lose your childlike spirit stay curious mm. and so you know be full of wonder and awe and um i'd like to think that's the american dream like be free yeah i think what you're saying is and I'm going to, I'm just going to like paraphrase is, uh, and I'm filling in the, the gaps here, but what you're saying is, is your child is going to get a lot more from staring at the stars with you than he would in a fancy kindergarten. Well, you know, and I think those places, they have their place. Like I would love for him to be in a school. that's just, it's kind of outdoorsy, blah, 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 but he's still going to have to do his homework. Here's what I'm trying to say. Even when we're watching a great movie like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, if there's thunder and lightning outside in hell, let's go outside and be in wonder of the thunder and lightning, which we did last time he was in Salt Lake. And he wanted to lick the hell off the sidewalk the whole, up the whole way up the street. And I let him. <laughs> like, it's, it's about, like, when life throws you something beautiful, to go be interested and look at that and move away from um, some contrived experience on a screen. It's, it's kind of like reality versus virtual reality. I'll take reality every day, but I can tell you if I don't parent this child, right, he will be more inclined to watch a screen than go live life. So I think that's where the parenting is so crucial. Mm -hmm. And so I'd rather build this into him while he's young. So it, hopefully it's not such a hard time when he's 15, but who yeah. knows, maybe, for all I know, my son will have incredible difficulties and may need treatment. I, I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's what I've learned from almost any parent is you don't know. You don't know what your child's going to face in life. My nephew had cancer when he was five and two weeks to live. And now he's running the ski school at Snowbird. So I don't know. We don't know what life's going to throw at us. And so I think, you know, Enjoy the journey. Go smell the thunder and lightning and rain in the air. I've seen some of the best parents I know have to check into our program, their children, and, or programs like yeah. ours. And that's, 
that's one of the myths, right? Is that it's terrible parenting. And sometimes it is. Sometimes terrible parenting plays a part, but not, not often. It's more the exception than the rule. Let, talk to me. We, you mentioned something at breakfast uh, a couple months ago when you and I got together. You were talking about creative play, and we didn't get a chance to get into it. What is that in your opinion? And, and tell me a little bit more about it. You know, I still am a nerd. I love to read and research pretty much every day. And um, the more I research, it seems like the more resilient and happier cultures, whether it's Costa Rica or Norway, like the Dutch and the Danish, for example, there's big believers in creative play. So a lot of downtime that's not structured. So they're not taking their kids and going to gymnastics, then baseball, then school, then study, then karate. What they're doing is they build in a lot of downtime. And what happens, research is showing that that's one of the greatest indicators of how to be a resilient and happy adult. So, you know, if you put it, like when I put my child out to pasture, if you will, like, sure, I can buy him a $40 toy. Guess what? He plays with it for five minutes. I put him in a field of dirt, literally, and he plays for three hours with a rock and a stick. That's creative play. Like, Papa, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, this stick, it's a sword. And, you know, he's got this whole story going. Mm -hmm. That's creative play. Well, that's what adults do. Everyday life throws us problems and we have to be creative. I have observed that my clients, the ones in the States that had to go to the next thing, the next thing, very programmatic childhood and adolescence, go, 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 productive, productive. Those kids tend to implode when they become 22. Nervous breakdowns, suicidality, profound addiction. Um, not all kids, but I'm saying in general, um, a lot of kids that are kind of on that hamster wheel or treadmill often don't do adulthood well. They're looking for the next prescription. And they often say, someone just tell me what to do um, instead of solving their own problems. And, and the research that I've read anyway has suggested that the more creative play a child has in their life, a lot of downtime. Um, where they just get to play and be bored and create something new um, in a relaxed feel about it. Um, when they're adults, they actually solve their own problems creatively. So um, I think there's a corollary there. And uh, so I try to incorporate that into my work with my clients, actually. Is there a book on this that you recommend? Um, there is a book called The Danish Book of Parenting that I found interesting. And there's another book about like how the Dutch um, create happy kids. Like, I think it's actually that something like that title, but I think if you just Google um, the happiest countries and comma children, you'll come up with probably 20 books. Um, actually Costa Rica where your program's at is one of the happier cultures in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, spent a weekend with a, you know, doing a retreat for a guy in his thirties. And he commented to me how he just loves going to Costa Rica, how it just makes him happy and relaxed. And so I I think some cultures have figured out um, some aspects of how a human best functions and is happier. And I think we'd be smart as scientists to observe that and learn and try to incorporate that into our life, no matter what country we live in too. You know, it's been one of the fascinating parts of, starting a program in Costa Rica and bringing North Americans to, to this happy country in Costa Ricans, as you know, are amazing people. 
And it's just yeah. been fun to kind of watch these two cultures sort of come together and support each other. Uh, yeah. You know, and see Costa Ricans really striving to understand the North American experience. You know, I've had staff come up to me and be like, what? Talk to me about like university, you know, like right. why, why is it such a big deal, the university they get into? You know, in all of Costa Rica, right. there's like three universities and, you know, right. two are public, one's private, I think. It's just, and university is really cheap. It's easy to get into. It's not, it's not, it's a very different experience. And so they see all these, our young adults getting like stressed out and, and, you know, about going back to their school or to the other school or getting into the school they want. And it's just fascinating because the Costa Ricans in some ways are kind of not in a condescending way or, or even a self-righteous way, in a curious way, they're just kind of stepping back and being like, why is this stressful for them? You know, I don't, you know, I don't get it. Um, and I could talk about that same thing when, in three or four or five different topics. Um, I love that my staff are striving to understand the culture better, but it's just fascinating for me to step back because I now understand Costa Rican culture so well. And I also understand my culture, you know, because it's where I come from and how the two clash. And honestly, I don't think it's a coincidence that I've been very drawn to Costa Rica for personal and spiritual yeah. reasons. Yeah. And how you were talking about that. Yeah. Um, I love North America. I love our culture here, the good and the bad. And I love Costa Rican culture, the good and the bad. Right. But it's done a lot for me in terms of teaching me to broaden myself and it doesn't have to be coming full circle in our conversation, this, this template and prescription of graduate job, career, you know, house, the whole thing. And anyway. But to add to that, what I'm listening to talk, where my mind goes is um, to probably one of the most important things I've noticed in almost 20 years of this work, stress is what really compromises people. So, I think there's healthy stress. Like, you know, we always, I think we all need a mountain to climb and a challenge to, you know, make life really wonderful and interesting. That's a healthy stress. But what I've observed is um, a lot of our, these kids specifically that we see in treatment are these really sensitive souls consistently. They're kind of the intuitive thinking philosophical birds. A lot of these kids not all, but quite a few of them, they, they're kind of contemplative. And stress of our culture seems to be breaking them. And so when, you know, I go to Costa Rica or I go to Sweden or Holland and, or Mexico and I look at other cultures, I notice that cultures that have less stress, um, and it could be even a different state in our country that has less stress, I think sometimes these kids just do better in that environment. Mm -hmm. Like I see a lot of our clients, they go, you know, I don't think I want to live in that city I grew up in. I think I want to move to a small town in Colorado and um, just live a more relaxed life. So I think stress is what we're kind of talking about. Um, some cultures are kind of less stressful and some households are less stressful. I would like to think that the model I created is creating a less stressful environment for the child and the parents. And then, then I get out of the way and they get on with their life. I like that. What do you love about your job? I love every day that I wake up and want to go to work. And when I was in my late twenties, I didn't want to. And I actually love the fact that every hour I'm challenged, I'm challenged right now. 
I'm using all of my skill sets and thoughts right now as we speak. And I like that my clients require that of me every hour. It's, I am never bored. It's always a joy. Even on my worst day, I'm happy. So I love that I followed my own path, that my mother, I did what my mother taught me to do, which is follow my heart. And I did what my father taught me to do, which is go for it. I feel lucky. Is my life full of interesting things and hardness and vicissitudes and ups and downs and canyons and shadowy valleys? Hell yeah. It's also full of mountaintops. So I feel like I'm living a full life and that's what I wanted. That's why I like hanging out with you, Ruben. I can feel it when I'm around you and that's why I like spending time with you, man. You can definitely feel that when you're around you and that's why I wanted to interview you, man. Where can people that's find cool. you? Thank you. Um, you know, probably the best way is just rubenjimenez.com. Um, it's R-U-B-E-N-J-I-M-E-N-E-Z.com or just Google the road home, the road home group.com. And you're available for coaching, uh, retreats. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of retreats, um, coaching for families before and after treatment. And probably half my workload these days is just kind of walking with someone through life's journey of any age from you know 15 to 95 so hey man thanks so much it was a pleasure having you yeah on. thank you man i really appreciate you hey guys thanks again for joining this episode of in the trenches with me your host andrew taylor if you like what you're hearing i would love it if you would subscribe to my podcast you can find me on itunes and soundcloud it's in the trenches with andrew taylor so thanks for joining and hope to see you next time.